Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Anytime that we are interacting with another person, we are putting on a performance for them and we are constructing an idea of ourselves in context of this performance. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network, where I just read Jonathan Hickman's X-Men reboot because one of you suggested it to me in our email inbox. And you're right. It was totally great. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Okay. This is a re-air episode. It's with New Yorker writer Gia Tolentino, who's the author of the book Trick Mirror. And I chose this episode right now for a reason. I had re-listened to it recently myself because I'm struggling with something that we sort of explore in a pre-pandemic way here. I really wonder what the very common human experience of quarantine was like before the internet made it possible to shelter in place but remain connected every second. In some ways, more connected even, at least to certain parts of the human nervous system than we were before. I mean, it seems it, it seems like what we have now would be better. Zoom and social media and all the rest of it. We can be inside but outside all at the same time. But I am, am I the only person? I don't think I'm the only person who finds the digital simulacrums of the life I had more exhausting, more dispiriting than not trying to recreate the life I had through a screen. I don't think I'm alone in thinking it would maybe even be better not to be able to get second to second, more than second to second. There's more than you can read coming out every second. Updates on the pandemic. I am not sure being this connected is making it better. I think many of us are getting the anxieties of connection without the nourishment of it. And at the same time, we are not getting the few consolations of actual disconnection. I think Tolentino explores and captures this sort of weird emotional experiential dimension of digital life better than anyone else. She's very attuned to the ways that when we replace something physical with what seems like the same thing digitally, that same thing actually acts on us in a very different way. It does not bring out the same thing in us and does not do the same thing to us. And, and I think that's happening on a really mass scale right now. This digital quarantine, this is an experiment and we are all the guinea pigs of it. And I at least think we should be trying to step outside and look at it. Uh, and this, 
in part because it came out before all this, is a way to do that. So I think there's particular value in this conversation right now. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Gia Tolentino. Gia Tolentino, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. So the the book is great. Um, Is it all surreal? That people are actually buying it? For me, that's extremely surreal. I mean, even my editor at The New Yorker, who I I love, he was sort of, he was like, yeah, you know, I I think the book's good. I think you're a good writer. But that's not, he was like, it's not a commercial book. He was like, I, and I think I am kind of surprised. I'm, I'm just surprised. You know, there's not like a takeaway, you know, from any of the essays, the book as a whole, you know, it's not it's not a very neat book. It's pretty dense. I mean, I'm giving it a terrible sales pitch right now, but I, you know, I'm surprised that people are down and I feel really like incredibly grateful. You know what I mean? How do you think people are how do you think people are finding it? Like, what do you think its transmission mechanism is? Well, one of them, I mean, I think I'm finally I'm finally seeing the fruition of, as I put in the book, you know, me flogging my own selfhood on the Internet for a decade, basically, or not a decade. <laughs> I got on Twitter in 2012 um, when I got back from the Peace Corps. But I I think that's part of it, you know, inevitably. Right. I mean, the first essay in the book is about how much the Internet, which is structured around social media platforms, is becoming this, you know, like central organ of contemporary life. And it's one that I kind of made my career on in lieu of having a lot of traditional connections or a background or experience, really. And I think that that's part of it. I'm, you know, as the children say, extremely online. It's part of it. But I don't know. I really don't know. I feel the covers also, the covers, the covers pretty. Like, I, I don't know why people are buying it, but I'm so glad they are. Oh, the cover's great. I'm trying to figure. We're in an argument about covers for my book right now. And oh, yeah? It's, it's hard to hard to pick a cover. Do you know, do you have a strong instinct about what you want? No, that's part of the problem. Oh, no. And like politics books all look the same. Like that's a, like that's the thing I'm afraid of is just everything blending into itself. But we're, we're not here to do therapy on my book. No, but I want to know. <laughs> I mean, this, this is something that I think really interesting. It, my editor at Random House let me pick the cover and was very like, you know, you can tweak it. You can tweak shades of the, you know, it was, I was extremely appreciative of that because I think it's true that books tend to look the same. I think mine is kind of in the line of some retro, you know, 60s-ish, you know, covers that have been coming out recently. And I think there is, yeah, the covers are stressful. I feel like they should always let the author pick exactly what they want, but they don't. And you want like 50 options, but that takes time and it's hard and it's not how the whole thing works. So yeah, just trying, just trying to figure that out and trying to make everybody happy is is tricky. Well, Um, I hope that you end up with an amazing cover that you love. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, Let's actually start in, in like the internet of selfhood. Uh, I I was thinking actually is a good organizing framework of this conversation. You have this first chapter Mm -hmm. that I just, I think I highlighted almost every word of it. It was (laughs) embarrassing. Um, but, But sort of towards the end of it, you write, I've been thinking about five intersecting problems. Yeah. First, how the internet is built to distend our sense of identity. Second, how it encourages us to overvalue our opinions. Third, how it maximizes our sense of opposition. Fourth, how it cheapens our understanding of solidarity. And finally, how it destroys our sense of scale. Yeah. It's like, yep, that's pretty much <laughs> that's yeah. pretty much the set. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd like to go through them. Sure. How does the internet distend our sense of identity? Well, let me just start by saying there are, you know, these problems could be subdivided or recombined. But, you know, the animating question behind like each of these essays is like, here was a question. And I wanted to see, not necessarily even answer it, but see how I literally was thinking of it. How might I go about answering this question? And the question for this one was, you know, the Internet used to seem fun and generative and surprising. And now it seems just, you know, unequivocally bad. And so 
And I, so I think there are more things that are wrong with the internet, but these five were just the neatest framework that I could get that also felt sufficiently complicated. So the first one, right, it's, how did I phrase it? Magnify your sense of identity or, or overvalue? Distend, which is a great word. Yeah, distend. That's it. <laughs> so, okay, so if the internet is the contemporary engine, you know, if the internet is the central organ of contemporary life, it's its engine is selfhood, right? It's it's the internet, its biggest companies are are all structured around centering and monetizing personal identity. And it's like that on Facebook, on Google, on Instagram, on Twitter. It's it's like that on all these platforms. Even if you don't want your selfhood to be, even if you're not actively participating in social media, which, you know, programmatically puts a text box next to your picture and says, what do you think about the world, you know, and sort of encourages you to view all new information, as I write in the book, like as a reflection on yourself, which is, you know, bananas, because most of the world just does not have that much to do with us specifically. Even if you don't participate on these, you know, in these social networks, you still live in the world that they shape and create. And that just struck me as so wild. And so, I just think the way we perform our identities for each other, this has existed as long as people have existed, right? Like identity performance in itself, trying to understand our identity, trying to fit a narrative around it. This is all natural and kind of necessary and in many ways good, but it's so thickly and, you know, irrevocably monetized on the internet that to me, it just seems like selfhood and our sense of identity just kind of buckles under this economic pressure. It buckles, it, you know, it bloats, it, it it's just dimensionally seems super unnatural to me. Uh, there's another metaphor that I, you know, have been thinking about for a long time, um, that the internet sort of it's like a platform on which you can see all, you know, the entire world and it makes it all kind of look like a reflection on you. And it's just like, you know, we're not meant to think of ourselves like this. We're not meant to think of ourselves as this, in this magnification, you know? So my book is also in a very different way, all about identity. Yeah. And how identities become the core unit of polarization. Yeah. And something that, I, I have this whole chapter on the internet, and it's part of why I was highlighting everything in yours, because yours uh, said so much of it so much more eloquently. But one of the things that seems really interesting to me and underplayed is the internet it didn't get this way by accident, and it also didn't get this way by central planning. Right. That nobody quite realized when it all started that if you created a bunch of options for people and how they would engage with the internet, the one that would hook them the most is identity. Right. And But everybody who figured that out, Facebook, but in a very different way, say BuzzFeed. I mean, I think of the early, and I actually talked to Jonah Peretti in my book about this, like the early big BuzzFeed hits mm -hmm. are all, not all, but one of the big things is it's all identity. It's like X things you will only understand if you're Y. Right. And memes essentially run on sort of an index of relatability, right? Like I, I kept trying to write this piece uh -huh. called It Meme, basically about how all me, like all memes are structured like it's like it me, you know, it's it's that's the basic that's the old, that's the basic thing that's being oh, communicated. I, get it. I like that, <laughs> you know, and my editor was like, you know, this almost we can't run this because it's too obvious. You know what I mean? Like this, it's like, yeah, the whole Internet runs around runs on this on this metric. But it didn't early Internet, right? The Internet yeah. you're talking about, that wasn't obvious. Right. And to me, one of the things the Internet has done is. People talk about this as a good thing about online commerce all the time. You're able to try so many things and experiment in agile software development and lean startup culture. Mm -hmm. And what we found in this massive kind of capitalism charged way of figuring out what would what would keep people coming back to something was that 
identity yeah. and the, the process of identity formation and identity um, like explanation is such a powerful internal driver on us yeah. that it will overwhelm anything else that you put on the internet. Like if yeah. you if you give people a way to say this is who I am right. and this is who my group is and this is how we draw the boundaries around it, like you build billion, 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 billion dollar companies and then all the other things people were trying during these periods of just like working with interests or, you know, like maybe people would like to, to, to hear from folks who don't agree with them or, you know, there are a million other things tried. They just failed. And to me, like one of the big lessons of the internet is that we underestimated just the the primal power of identi- identity in the process of identification. And like now we know. And I wonder if we're just working yeah. with powers that are too strong for what we're doing. I agree with you. but I, And I also – my version when I think about this is also we underestimated what – capitalism at this accelerated stage could do to any any worthwhile idea. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I think I think that I think this is one of the reasons that the internet um like why this particular issue has its claws in me so much. I mean, one is just demographic. I I came of age at the same time that the internet did. So its selfhood, you know, its its mechanisms are so, you know, irrevocably intertwined with my own selfhood and sense of self and my life and career. I mean, as it is with many of ours now. But I think sort of what we do to figure ourselves out and what we what communities we seek out and how we triangulate who we are in context of these systems, this is like this is a really beautiful human thing, you know? It's such a it's it's actually important for us to figure out who we are. And and then you see this this process. It's sort of like social media platforms turned the idea of connection, you know, they promise connection and they induce just mass alienation. And I think one of the reasons that upsets me so much is that, you know, the desire to connect is is really important. And it's gotten so perverted and turned on us by the Internet. And there's something about what the market at this stage of acceleration can do to things that are really necessary to, you know, the project of being alive. I think that's what I have become so afraid of, kind of, or wary of. I love that. I love that point about things promising connection leading to alienation. And and I wonder if part of it is that we just mistook our identities for ourselves. Yeah. It's a very different experience to connect to somebody as the messy kind of screwed up person I am and to connect to them in terms of one of the identities I have, specifically to connect in terms of one of the identities I have. Right. Like if you look at if you're able to get many simultaneously, you get some sense of me, maybe. But if it's one of them, if it's just like the politico, right? right? Or if it's just the, I don't know. Um, then you get this very attenuated version of me. Jenny O'Dell, who's been on the show, is who, you, who you quote in the book, who's wonderful. Right, right, right. She calls it, I'm, I'm so obsessed with that book. And she calls it an algorithmic entombment. And I, you know, I, I've ever, like, I read that word and I read that phrase and it was, you know, stamped on my cerebral cortex for the rest of time. And I, yeah, I think this is exactly what you're saying about, I, I write in the book that the internet sort of a functional identity on the internet is a person that can be all things to all people at any time, which is not, you know, that will make our selfhood sort of implode on itself like a, you know, like a black hole or something. Like it, we're not supposed to do that. We are supposed to have selves in context and the internet removes, you know, as people have written for a long time, it removes context and it's sort of this, you know, unrelenting panopticon in which identity really gets flattened into something unsustainable and overly consistent, right? And it has to be consistent for the algorithms to work. Yeah. This is my Jenny O'Dell quote that I can't get out of my head, um, which I'm paraphrasing from memory, but that we spend so much time working out how to say things to people who have no context for us. And what if we instead spent the time 
saying the right things to the people who did have context for us. Yeah. And that one of them, one of them is a mode of connection and one of them is a mode that is inevitably going to lead to alienation and misunderstanding. Yeah, 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 yeah. You talk in the book about Irving Goffman's theory of identity. Could you talk about that a bit? Yeah, so he, Irving Goffman, his theory of identity, you know, I think the book was published in 1959, The Presentation of Self and Ordinary Life. I might be wrong on the date, but so his theory of identity was basically like a dramaturgical one, right? Like we... Anytime that we are interacting with another person, we are putting on a performance for them and we are constructing an idea of ourself in context of this performance. And so I use the example of someone, you know, at a job interview, right? I might be performing automatically. I might not even know I'm performing just because I've been on so many job interviews, you know, it doesn't matter or just because I'm giving off because of what I look like and who I am and my credentials or whatever I might be giving off the, you know, that might be performing for me. I might know that my performance is false. You know, I might be no I might know that I'm lying about my greatest my you know my greatest flaw being perfectionism or whatever. I might not be trying to perform at all, but no matter what, the effect is still a performance, right? And the idea is is that these performances are inevitable and they're ubiquitous and they change based on context. Like us having this conversation, we are performing this idea of people that have a reasonable amount of knowledge about these, you know, the, our professional fields and the internet and whatever. And I, when I get in a cab later to go back to my hotel, this is not the self I will be performing for my cab driver. I'll be asking them about the weather and, you know, et cetera. It's different from the one I'll be staging, you know, when I meet my friend for a drink tonight. And, you know, there's this idea that our life is a series of, you know, it's inevitably a series of performances. We get relief because the audience changes over, the performances change, and sometimes we end up backstage, like at home, you know, where we feel that we are in the company of other performers, maybe, or just by ourselves, and we can drop the idea of performance altogether. And I thought that, you know, this this framework, which I, I basically buy on the internet, right, the audience never changes over, it just accumulates, and, you know, the audience never has to leave. And that's, you know, that's what gives rise to this idea. You know, I, I think I compare the Internet to being on the Internet can be like being on a job interview that never has to end, um, especially as the Internet gets tangled up with, you know, just basic social security nets, you know, like healthcare GoFundMes and mm -hmm. stuff. The Internet takes this framework of performance, which is like a stage, and it turns it into like a panopticon or a hall of mirrors. And... Um, you just are in this never-ending performance. And I think there's a, a real way in which there's an idea of a never-ending performance. And there's an idea, uh, that's why I like the backstage concept so much. Yeah. If you don't keep going backstage, yeah. if there is no backstage right. because you're on Instagram all the time when you're at home, or right. then you begin to lose a sense of the performance. Right. If you yeah. if you never stop performing, then at some point you become like the method actor who loses himself in the role. Yeah. And that seems right. to happen to a lot of people. I mean, that is a particularly with people who are extremely online. That is there is a at this point almost like predictable kind of eventual piece you will read about people who are Internet figures from a couple of years ago. Right. About how it took over their life and the performance never dropped. And like that right. seems to me to be something that happens in a small way to a lot of particularly I think it's happening to a lot of younger people where. Yeah. If you can't rest, then you never stop performing. And then it actually kind of becomes hard to know who's at the center of the whole thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm enough a part of this. You know, I, it's the Internet has has determined enough about my understanding of self that I I mean, I think that's part of what I was trying to write the essay to get at, you know. And I also there's another essay that's about 
I, I think I realized something different about the way I interact with the internet. And for me, mostly, like the way I interact with the internet, I'm just like, have a good time, you know, don't be annoying. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just like the same as real life, right? I, I try to act on the internet the way I try to act in real life, which is try to have fun, try to be decent, you know, and if you have, if you're having a bad time, go away, you know, um, like use it through a lens of pleasure rather than obligation or, you know, anything else. And mostly I just have adopted this the strategy of just kind of trying to be thoughtless and, you know, be natural. And then I I realized, you know, I I was a senior in high school in 2004 and I went on this reality TV show because I was just like trying to get out of the house like anyone does when they're a teenager. And I ended up convincing my parents to let me film this reality TV show in Puerto Rico. And I watched, I finally watched the tape, you know, 13 years later. I realized like, that was before social media, right? That was before selfhood had really become systematic to the internet. And it was before self-surveillance was, you know, a, like a standard undercurrent of our time. And I had taken to these, you know, I took to being on camera all day really naturally. I acted the same on camera as I was acting at the time. And it's very similar to how I am now. And I was and I was just like, whoa, you know, like had had I already been ruined by, you know, by performative tendencies? Or, you know, was I always just a way that, was I always just of a temperament and personality that would be okay with these things? But it really made me understand that I had been participating in these mechanisms at the very least for a lot longer and a lot more sort of holistically and deeply than I than I had really understood. I loved that essay on your time in reality TV. And something <laughs> I was thinking about reading it after the after the first chapter was you talk in that essay about the reality TV edits. Somebody oh, yeah. gets the villain edit or the hero edit. There were two people on your reality show who decided they were going to be uh, like, a, like a romance storyline, yeah. even though one of them was gay. Yeah. And something I was thinking about reading that is that when we hear about that on reality TV, it sounds manipulative. It sounds like, oh, that's so awful that people get edited into this thing they maybe even didn't mean to be or aren't. Yeah. But then as an analogy, we're constantly giving ourselves a particular edit, right? Yeah. The political activist edit. Yeah. The sexy edit. The actually my life is super happy edit and I'm always going and traveling in interesting yeah. places. Sometimes we even give ourselves online the villain edit. I mean, there are people who have clearly decided to be an online troll. Yeah. And that there's something very interesting about doing that edit to yourself for, pub yeah. for public consumption in that way. Like at least if it's reality TV producers, you can say they did this to me. Yeah. But I think about sometimes when I write a piece that like I gave an edit and I somehow failed in the edit and people didn't get the version of me I wanted them to get. Sure, yeah. How there's no one to blame. How like just kind of annihilating that can feel like. Yeah. That it's really hard to be the editor of yourself in yeah. that way. Yeah, and also, you know, at the same time, right, it's like this is just one version of self-editing that, you know, like we were saying earlier, it's, I, I think it's really when I'm sitting across the table from one of my friends and, you know, she's going on about, you know, some bullshit I don't feel like talking about or whatever, I want to give myself the edit of being a thoughtful friend, you know? Like in life, I think I think this idea that we kind of project a self that we want to step into as a way of stepping into it, you know, it's like I'll, I'll, I'll give myself the edit of being thoughtful friend and then 10 minutes later, I will have become that thoughtful friend, right? When I was, my cheerleading coach in Texas always used to say, fake it till you feel it, which is obviously not the way I go through life. But I often think about that in terms of the things that I, I genuinely want to be, which is, you know, kind and generous and thoughtful, you know, and, and patient and, you know, whatever. I, I do try to give myself that edit. I do try to 
put myself into that mold in hopes that I will become that way. And I think that, you know, we all do that, right? We want to be good family members. We want to be good partners. We want to, you know, and I think that that is necessary, right? And, and I think even like from a writer's standpoint, I do give myself the edit so that I can, you know, produce myself on the page as someone that's trustworthy. And in the process of doing that, I think I genuinely become more trustworthy, right? When I want to be, when I'm working on a long piece and I want to be fair, I want to present as a fair journalist, I will do the reporting that will ensure that the piece is as fair as I can get it. And so I think that, you know, there are valences to this that are in, that are not only pernicious, not dangerous, but are actually, I think, just fundamental to a functioning society, right? And actually really wonderful in a lot of cases. But it was interesting. Um, I, I like with that reality TV show, I had never known how I was cast, you know, because I'd never watched it. And I didn't know what they were going to make out of me. And I didn't know how they had cast me. And they actually, when I t interviewed the producer who reminded me when we, you know, got a drink in Midtown, New York, that she had been my age now when she was producing that show, which was really a trip. But she, you know, she had cast me as this like type A, you know, like Tracy Flick type, which I'm not, but I'm capable of projecting that sometimes. Um, and that was fascinating to me, right? Like I had projected that instinctively in this casting booth in a mall in Houston, because I think something deep down in me knew that that you know, I was like, I want a free vacation to Puerto Rico. So I'm going to give, you know, this is the version of me that I think will like snag someone's attention. I think subconsciously I must have been doing that because that's actually not how I am. And it's never really how I was. And that was like, a, that was kind of terrifying to realize that I had just done that naturally, probably, you know. To dwell on that tension a bit more, yeah. um, the the idea that this kind of performance can actually be positive. Yeah. One of the things I was thinking about with the idea of backstage and front stage, yeah, and this idea that you can go home and let it drop, is sometimes performance can really be important. Yeah, and sometimes I feel like I'm performing for the wrong audience. So I'll spend my day doing this podcast or at work or interviewing people, and really working, expending energy to project the best version of myself, mm -hmm. thoughtful and interesting and reflective and yeah. listening, and then I'll go home, and <laughs> my. Poor, my poor partner like gets this exhausted, anxious, <laughs> yeah. like grumpy, and I'm and and I'll think at the end of the day like I just put I put all that energy into a performance of this best version of myself for everybody else, and then I gave like the person I love like a shitty version of myself, and like obviously yeah. there, there's some of that you should have in relationships, but right. I do think there's a funny thing in in the in there is only so much performing energy we have, mm -hmm. and I wonder about the expenditure of performance externally. Versus sometimes, you know, I'll notice at the end of the week, like I don't have the worst I feel is like when I don't have the energy to listen to a family member or friend's problems. And I think like I put all this energy into work and like I don't have this performance for you. Like, yeah, what am I doing? I've been thinking about that. You know, I've been on book tour. I've been doing a lot of self-promotion and I um, I've been thinking about this specifically in terms of I think I started I used to be an editor at Jezebel. And women's media has its own version of this, like what we owe to who and for what reason that I found really interesting to sit with for, you know, every day for years. And one of the things that I think has helped me navigate the Internet is that I kind of have a chip missing where, like, I care deeply and, like, so intensely about what I, the, what the people I love think about me, you know. 
But it's very, it's it's pretty hard for me to care what strangers think about me on the internet. You know, it seems kind of self-evident to me that a stranger's opinion of me is is basically none of my business. And that's helped me sort of be able to not go nuts on the internet, I think. Um, but, but I think I started maybe even cultivating this as a deliberate um, principle when I sort of, there was this thing about the internet and the the women's blogosphere particularly that I think, or just maybe being a woman on the internet in general, or maybe being a person on the internet, um, there's a way in which the internet can make it seem that you're beholden to anyone that can look at you, right? And in reality, it's like we're beholden to the people we love and the people who love us. And we can, and one thing that's great about the internet is that it can expand that circle beyond what we could ever have imagined. But the bad thing about the internet is that it can, it, that it can expand that circle beyond what we could have imagined and possibly, I mean, definitely beyond what we can reasonably sustain. And I think that's been giving me some anxiety right now because I think that, um, yeah, I think I'm just getting a sense that just how the internet can do that. And and I I, I try, like, I, I go back and forth between thinking, like, how far should that circle of people you love and care about and want to be good for, right? How how far should should we expand that just as like as citizens and people with, you know, a voice or a platform, right? Like it's possibly a great thing to be able to expand the number of people you try to be good for, but it's also, it seems dangerous. And I yeah, in general, like exactly what you're thinking. I think about that, exactly what you were saying. I think about that constantly. Like I try to remember that the person I am thinking about and creating this self for, and I think Jenny's book was so good about this. It's like, it's it's really bounded. You know, it's bounded in my relationships and my community. And I think that that's one of the greatest distortions the internet has. It physically removes you from that, you know, who we're really in this world for. Let me let me try an idea on you yeah. that I'm not even sure I fully believe myself, but, but it's something I've been playing with. So for everything you just said, mm-hmm. there's a way in which this era of like public communication seems to me to really value, uh, really select for people who can absorb a lot of public controversy. Like if you want to be a very public figure right now, it is good to be able to absorb a lot of public controversy. That's not always how it was. I mean, there's other times where if you wanted to be the head of a political party, right, you want to be a presidential nominee, what you needed to do was make other members of that political party like you because you needed to win a convention, right? Or if you wanted to be a top-level journalist, what you needed to do was make editors like you Mm because you needed to, like, get promoted up the ranks. But now you can do a lot, whether you're a Donald Trump or an Ocasio-Cortez or whatever, through social media. You can do a lot in journalism through social media. Like, I got here through blogging, so so to some degree did you. But if you ladder that up enough, mm-hmm. this idea that we are now have this public sphere that is selecting for people who either, for one reason or another, are willing to just absorb a lot of public controversy, yeah. it's a different kind of person. Maybe it's not the kind of person we always want to select for, even if some of those people I like. Yeah, well, this has to do with, I think, it magnifies our sense of opposition. I also think I have a person, a type of personality that the internet tends to favor. And I think that I was social, you know, part of me has always been like this since I was a toddler, like extremely, you know, outgoing and kind of pleasantly careless and whatever. You know, women have been able to personal brand the internet much more successfully than men, I think, like across mediums. And part of that is because women are acutely aware of their self-presentation from, you know, the second they become preteens and probably earlier, right? Like that was John Berger's whole ways of seeing 
thing. And I think that you're I, I completely agree with you. The internet um it is now buoying to the top people that not only can absorb criticism, but can turn it to their advantage. I think that's specifically, you know, that are able to use a sense of opposition to boost their own profile. And with all of these things, it's like you just have to look at the specific vectors of power that are placing each person in wherever they are, right? Like, I think that, let's say, like, a you know, Black Lives Matter activist that, you know, did really well on Twitter, like, that sense of opposition is real. They weren't magnifying it. They were just, you know, able to communicate it around, communicate around it in the appropriate way. Um, you know what I mean? But then there, I, I think, as, you know, I write in that section of the essay, there is there's a really gnarly thing about how easy it is to let opposition serve you. Like some, you know, some Instagram influencer or whatever, this woman, Caroline Calloway, I don't know who she is. She's been kind of trying to troll me all week. And I, you know, I was just like, don't take the bait. But I could have taken that bait, you know, posted this thousand word, you know, thing she wrote on Instagram about me. I could have posted it. I could have engaged. I could have, you know, framed her as my opposition and really, you know, gotten some attention for that, you know, and it would have it would have behooved me to do so by the by the laws of the Internet. And I think that there are just so many situations like this where we're kind of incentivized to take a piece of bait that we don't need to take and to let it serve us. And I thought about that so often at Jezebel. Some women are trolled so badly that their lives are ruined, you know, like some women, right, I get have to constantly be moving out of their houses and getting their, you know, their events canceled for death threats and all this stuff. Um, I'm trolled, a, I would say, a normal amount, you know, just an average amount of fetus pictures in my email, you know, aborted fetus pictures in my email and, like, things calling me a bitch and whatever. It became so obvious to me at Jezebel that I could have made my career around those trolls, you know? Like, the internet, it could have allowed me to establish a pretty profitable identity doing nothing but talking about my trolls. And that really disturbed me. And I think, you know, when we think about just the media's failures, I mean, when I think about my own failures leading up to the election— how just even just the way we engaged with Trump benefited him. I've I've been thinking about this constantly. And yeah, I've been really wary of just, I think I've been trying to think about when opposition might, I might be trying to use it to serve me. And there's also the problem, the internet just naturally, it makes any engagement into magnification, right? So it's like, there's some way that this problem, this problem is built in and intractable, but Anyway, yeah, I think you're I think you're completely right. I think that is the like the central media problem right now. Yeah. Um you have this great line on it in the book, trolls and bad writers and the president know better than anyone. When you call someone terrible, you just end up promoting their work. Yeah. Well, how do you think we get around this? I am <laughs> fucking lost. I've been writing about this lately and I actually had Whitney Phillips, who's this great communication oh, so scholar good. on the show for a second time just a couple weeks ago. Um here here's a, the thing I keep circling. So there's this Buddhist idea that I like a lot, yeah. which is that uh, pain times resistance equals suffering. Yeah. And I, I think that there's like an analogous idea in the media that it is offensiveness times media amplification equals social damage. And at least that's something like we have to take seriously. It isn't to say that I think a lot of the things Donald Trump does, they actually rely on us. Yeah, like his tweets. They don't have any power on their own. Yeah. His tweets. So I think a good version of this is Pocahontas. Uh -huh. Donald Trump on Twitter would call Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas. And because that was a particularly racist nickname he had for her, or insult, bullying name, whatever you want to call it, yeah. 
it got a lot of media coverage. It got much more coverage than when he calls Joe Biden Sleepy Joe. Or I don't even remember what he calls Nancy Pelosi at this point. (laughs) And so it got a lot of media coverage. And then, you know, we would write explainers on it and attacks on it. And then, you know, eventually she responded and then she over-responded. And like nobody was nobody was helped by that except Donald Trump. And nobody like knew more at the end of it. And so there's this way in which I think the media operates. And this, again, is Whitney Phillips' insight. But we operate under this metaphor of sunlight as a disinfectant. Uh-huh. If somebody says something truly terrible, then the thing we need to do is turn all of the sunlight on it. But she makes a point that like a lot – what sunlight does to a lot of things is it makes them grow. And I think that we are – like our sunlight is Trump's growth medium. And and I put forward – and I don't fully believe it, but I put forward in this in this essay this idea of what if we only covered Trump instead of instead of covering him every time he did something abnormal – what if we actually forced him to normalize himself? If he wanted coverage, he had to act like a real president, not just like fling insults around on Twitter. Like what would happen? Would he be – I don't know. But I, I don't yeah. think what we're doing is working. Well, right. And then you think though, you know, would news organizations, you know, our news organizations, like could we could we take that dip of traffic that that would bring, you know? Like would we be willing that's, to do yeah. that? And that's the other question, right? I mean I – I think so much of so much about so much of this book, there's not that much in this book about Trump. There's as you know, a bare minimum. And but the entire book is in a way about this sense I have, which is not the sunlight question. And that Whitney Phillips phrasing is really interesting. Her trolls book was really helpful for me in that first essay. But I was, you know, there's this also this corollary related feeling that I've had, and I'm sure I want I would love to know what you think about this, that like after the election, I was like, okay, <laughs> all right. I can understand something, you know, to a thousand points of, you know, a thousand degrees of nuance. I can understand its historical backing. I can understand its theoretical ramifications. I can understand its echoes, its parallels, whatever. It doesn't matter, you know? Like, I think about this specifically with just Trump being racist. And every time he tweets a racist thing, it's like, I just sort of feel paralyzed by the fact that, you know, my my job is to try to understand things better and express them clearly. And in a lot of ways, the last two years have made me feel that that project is maybe not what I thought it was, you know, that it doesn't have it doesn't have the consequences that I thought it was. And I think the book, the book is a lot in a lot of ways me trying to work that out. Right. Like, what is the use of understanding in a world where many of the pathways to change are being foreclosed and obviated and shrunk kind of before our eyes. And I think, you know, like even just the basic project of trying to understand the world seems different now. Do you do you know what I mean? Yes. As somebody who started an explainer yeah. website, I do know what you mean. <laughs> but, you know, but it's like I the thing is, you know, I find these things so useful as a consumer. But as a writer, I, you know what I mean? Like I I turn to like these long explainers, like constantly, I was just looking at a Vox one about, you know, like some Cambridge Analytica thing. Yes. You know, today, this morning, 30 minutes ago. And I, and and I, I need them as a consumer, but as a writer, for some reason, I'm trying to understand if there is a different sort of teleological purpose to knowledge right now or something. I don't know. I, I have a couple of thoughts on this. So one, and I don't, I don't know, right. I, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Um, But the two places where I have an impulse are, one, so much of media ethics conversations operates implicitly from this idea that if we fully abdicate all responsibility we have for our decisions of what to cover, what then is the most responsible way we can cover what we've already decided to cover? 
And I've become much more focused on that question of what we decide to cover in the first place. So if you are participating in an incredibly ethical, thoughtful, nuanced, cerebral, reported, researched, et cetera way to amplify a sick news cycle, to get into the history of Pocahontas slurs or whatever, well, maybe you're just still part of the problem. Like maybe if if the news cycle is bad from the start, if you're if you're just a uh, if you're just doing interesting work on top of something already toxic, like you might just be pumping out more toxins. And it isn't to say one should never do it. Like I obviously believe we should try to explain the news, but we also create the news. And I think that's like the key hard thing. Now you just mentioned a couple minutes ago that issue of the competitive dynamics of are we willing to take the traffic hits or even also. Just like the 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 intense anxiety of everybody else is covering this and we're not. I mean, that's really hard. Um, that collective action problem of the media, which is not – if like the media were a conspiracy, we would cover things in a more orderly way. <laughs> um, but we don't. We're very herd-like. And so I think that's really hard. But somehow I think it's in making better decisions about what to cover. When we launched Vox, um, we had these two lines. One was explain the news, but the other was the most important things aren't new. And one of the things I've just been reflecting on a lot recently is that those were just in so much more tension than I'd given credit for at the beginning. Because you can take something in the news and use it to um, explain something important that isn't new, right? You can do that pivot. But oftentimes there isn't that pivot. Oftentimes you're just choosing between something important that isn't in the news and then like the thing that the news cycle is screaming at you. And you usually choose a thing that the news cycle is screaming about. Well, you know, I think this is another Jenny O'Dell thing. Like, you know, she talks about the civic body being like, you know, when it is distracted and kind of buffeted, you know, by the winds of the Internet, it's like a it becomes like a body that can't like a physical human body that can't communicate with itself. Right. That can't think and it can't act. And I, I think my my sort of related way of thinking about this, like I often get this panic of like, what the hell am I doing? Like. Post Me Too, you know, I've, I found myself writing about sexual assault just over and over and over. And it, I found it productive. You know, it, I also find all of this a productive hurdle to have to leap over as a writer, right, to demand a usefulness of myself that I can't see until I start writing and figure out what that tiny bit of usefulness can be. You know, but with, with like, you know, the Kavanaugh stuff, let's say, you know, I was just like, why am I you know, like, why am I writing that assault is bad for the millionth time, right? Like, what am I doing? And I think I, but, and that's a subject on which I end up communicating so much with people who are reading it. And I think I, you know, there's a part of me that's maybe trying to think about, as you're saying, like, it's not, what I'm writing about is not Kavanaugh. What I'm trying to do maybe is to, to give people a space to feel like they have a ground to stand on that and they're going to step off it and do something else, right? Like maybe that it's like a longer game. It's a it's like a consolidation of nerve and resolve or something. Like I, I sometimes think that there's that use in in clear writing that it just it sort of like can defragment your brain and kind of collect you. And maybe that's enough. Maybe that's all we can do sometimes. I, I think that I mean I think all those things are true, right? And and we have to cover Kavanaugh, we have to cover Donald Trump. We don't get to not, but there is this way in which I don't know. There's something about the way in which I think the media, and particularly the social media inflected media, has become part of what is driving like the civic body crazy. But then as a civic body becomes crazy, we're like, well, we're just holding up a mirror to the civic body. Like, what do you want us to do? And there's this like moving in and out of a sense of agency 
that is just a, a, a difficult space to be in. I don't know what to do about it. <laughs> yeah, but the civic body, right, I think I think it's permanently changed. I mean, one of the things that I think we're realizing, and it's something I've been thinking about now for another piece I'm working on, is someone asked me recently in an interview what I think my subject is, you know, like if, like if, if I think there's a through line in what I write about. And increasingly, I think that the thing that I'm interested in is the increasing inextricability of algorithmic interests from human ones. And I hmm. think, you know, at some point we are maybe already there at the point where the, you know, the the behavioral patterns of the civic body are the ones of the algorithm. And that is so scary, you know? All right. We have to take a quick break, but I'll be right back with Gia Tolentino. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between so you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected, and 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. So back in the Obama era, um, I did this interview with with the then president, and I was asking about polarization. And he he made this point because this is an argument sort of I had with his administration, where he was more optimistic about, you know, the ability to get red and blue to work together and and so on. And he would say that, look, like, yes, people are polarized in politics, but Look at them on the little league field. Look at them when they're helping their neighbors. Look at how they are in their communities. Like we're we're not just this. I mean, like I and he would say, like I go around America all the time, and I'm always so encouraged and enthused. And there's something about the collapsing down of our identities to our political identities, and the strengthening of those, and the connecting of those to sort of racial identities and geographic identities and religious and so on. That it seems to me to be some of the issue here, it's not that we've lost all these other parts. It's not that we've gone crazy as individuals or even crazy as a country. I mean, there's that, 
you know, James Fallows and Deborah Fallows book from a, a year or two ago now, Our Towns, or I think something about that, where they go around to all these different towns and they just show how different the local politics are. But it is this way in which the online dimension collapses our identities down. Yeah, absolutely. And when you collapse the identities down, like that's that's really powerful because the people with the most collapsed down identities are the ones driving politics and picking nominees and so on. So then like the country just has to like work within that choice structure. But it doesn't account for all of us, but it is the funnel which we all kind of travel through now if we want to be part of this, quote unquote, national conversation. And the longer, you know, again, it's like, right, even if you don't use Facebook, you live in the world that Cambridge Analytica created, right? And I think that even if you don't, if you don't, if you don't want your identity to be flattened in this way, there, you know, as time goes by, I think we'll see fewer sort of escape routes and fewer, you know, walls that are, you know, even erectable at all in real life, you know? Um it's like we're we're still pretty the inter, like the social internet is is not it's like it's so young and it's so you know it's so relatively young and it has already it's really i think really shifted a lot more than we uh i mean we it's also it's also a truism how much it's shifted about us but i i think that you know like the the EU recently issued right this data like a, a data provision sort of i don't know how enforceable it is but it's it is sort of asserting the need for algorithms to be explainable for like any sort of recommendation algorithm that's built on a neural network to be explainable. And um, even something like that, if we had had that for YouTube, you know, it's, it's like you just think how far things have already, you know, the train left the station a long time ago, it feels like. Mm hmm. This, I think, is actually a good bridge to it encourages us to overvalue our opinions because you have some really interesting reflections in the way the process of opinion formation has become confused with the process of action that feels to me really relevant here. Yeah. So this is another thing that I started thinking about at Jezebel all the time, which was, you know, there was this way in which identity was getting conflated with opinion in that, you know, your identity was was composed of the opinions you had and that and that was it, right? Like you were you were what you believed and that constituted your identity. And I think that's wild, you know, <laughs> and and then there was this other idea that, um, you know, speech itself was being being framed on the internet as action because the internet by nature values the representation of a thing over the thing itself because a lot of things can't really exist on the internet. Only the representations of them can. And so, you know, you would get like so-and-so spoke out about this issue and it was so important, you know, and it was, it was just this thing, this speech was action. And speech and, you know, and opinion formation was, you know, we would like a celebrity would voice support for something and it would seem important. And to me, it, that was so I just couldn't understand a, a tiny little bit of that. It just seemed so strange to me. And I think that the Internet just has a way of collapsing. And then so it collapses all three of those into one, which is, you know, to even have an identity, right, to consider yourself, let's say, you know, like to consider yourself a MAGA person or like a hashtag resistance person, this seems like action online, right? The, it, it makes deciding that that's your identity seem like actual political action. And I, yeah, I found that, I found that so hard, hard to take. I mean, it, and I found it hard to take in part because I benefit, as I write in the book, I benefit from it, right? Like I'm, I mostly write opinion. Um, I've benefited from the way the internet collapses identity and opinion and action. And, um, I benefit for I benefit from these, and, and I think also this is the condition of contemporary life. Where, like understanding for me, understanding that I benefit from systems that are corrosive, um, and 
And I think that's just what it is to be alive. And I, but that, that in particular, I, the internet, the identity opinion action thing, it's, yeah, it makes having an opinion seem like a super important thing in itself, where to me, opinions seem pretty self-evidently useful if they're not the thing that makes you act. But it's so fast. So I'm 35. And when I grew up, like, it's not that long ago, there was so little political opinion, but really any kind of opinion. I mean, cultural opinion is even harder to find. Like, I grew up in uh, in Orange County, California. So we got the LA Times. So I had the op-ed page. And I guess if I had listened to talk radio, I could have found some there. I didn't subscribe to political magazines because I'm a normal person, or was. I once was a normal person. Um, there wasn't really at that point like a like a political internet yet. There was no opinion. <laughs> I mean, there was so it was so, and now it's just everywhere. Like everything is suffused in opinion, and I I think that is something that it feels obvious now because like well, opinions cheap and so on. But the, I mean, the nightly news didn't have opinion. You didn't have cable news networks yet. Like it, 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 there was so little political opinion, but also cultural opinion. I didn't have this many people telling me what to think about different cultural figures, telling me who was problematic, telling me who I could and couldn't like. And so not only was there less opinion, there was also just more room for me to form my own opinions without knowing what they were supposed to be before. And that's a very recent thing. I mean, access to this level of opinion is a new and different thing. And it seems so obvious and natural uh, in a way that I think has actually obscured what a what a historical anomaly it is. Yeah. And it also has very quickly inculcated this state of being where opinion just seems self-evidently really important when, you know, and again, I, there's this built-in tension with me expressing this opinion because my this, this thought, because my job is literally writing down what I think. And it's like part of that chapter is me trying to figure out, you know, it's like I am part of the, I am propping up the system personally every single day. But I think also there's this thing about the internet too. The genesis of this at Jezebel is that people would always, you know, like a woman would, someone would write a personal essay and then people in the comments would be like, well, you know, I disagree with your choices as if that was supposed to matter to that woman or me or anyone, you know? And, and it was like, it was just this idea that we would just, like, there was so much time spent on the internet figuring out the precisely correct way of explaining our standpoint and our opinions and our lives. And it seemed that so much energy was being expended on this, that we were, the internet was, as like, you know, functioning like a diversion, right? Like, it's this sort of para, like, para-universe that's just hovering right over the real one, looking very much like it. And in the meantime, you know, we are expressing our anguish about children dying in mass shooting like so beautifully and so you know we are we are expressing these moral narratives on the internet in the meantime the the mechanisms through which you know things are being redistricted and donations are being made you know fully outside the realm of the internet you know that the and, and the internet continues to make that harder to see there's something about it that feels like a it's like a shunt, right? It's just diverting. It's diverting our energy into this opinion refinement and production. Um, and it's like it's such a waste of civic energy to me. You have this beautiful line that uh, online opinion spaces, Twitter and so forth, that they make communication about morality very easy, but make actual moral living very hard. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah. So I think, well, I mean, the internet, right? So part of my anxiety with the internet is that it is inextricable from the acceleration of capitalism that has made moral living like nearly impossible, I feel, right? Like, 
when I'm taking these ride-sharing services that don't give their drivers benefits. You know, I I have to work so much because of the internet, because of how Facebook and Google are sucking up ad revenue for media. So I work all the time and I have never understood work as something that I wouldn't have to do all the time. And as a result, I order things online instead of taking an hour to go get them in Brooklyn, right? And I, and I feel just this sense of we are all so implicated in these systems that are, you know, are are just miserable and are crushing so many people. And and the people who are particip- like we at any level of participation, it's, you know, becoming like slightly compulsory. At the same time, all we do on Twitter is talk about righteousness, right? And I think I was thinking that my example about this in the book is that, you know, iconic tweet about the three-year-old at Disney World, right? Or some woman, you know, there was that story where a, a toddler was tragically killed by an alligator while swimming in a lagoon in Disney World. And this woman tweeted, you know, I, I, I'm i going to mess up the exact phrasing, but I think she was like, I'm so tired of white man's entitlement that I'm really not sad that, you know, three-year-old got eaten because daddy ignored the sign. And it's just like, you know, I think it's just like one of those moments when, you know, my head felt like my head just fell off my shoulders and I was like, okay, like the world's over. We're done. You know, like it's like this is the this kind of tweet could only be produced in a world that makes it so easy to talk about morality and it, it makes communication around morality seem so much more important than morality itself. You know, like things had gotten so out of proportion and yeah. Yeah, I I like that idea that communication about morality becomes separated from morality itself. Maybe this is what people are trying to get at with the idea of signaling, which I normally think of as a completely bullshit idea. Um, and you talk about this a bit in the book, but it's very hard sometimes to separate the idea that you want to be a good person from also you want to be seen as a good person. And those are not necessarily even even opposed. But I, I do think there's something to, to what you're saying. A, a way in which I've come to think about it, too, is that same sentence, but substituting in the words politics. Like the, the the internet seems to me to be making political opinion very easy and the practice of politics very hard. The internet seems to create an almost anti-politics where you don't need to persuade anybody. You shouldn't talk to anybody who doesn't agree with you, that other people are, are illegitimate. There's a, a huge discourse around it's not my job to convince you. Which is like, fine, fair enough. It's like, it isn't it. Unless it literally is your job to do grassroots organizing, it probably isn't your job to convince anybody. But if you want your politics to work out, which is often what it seems like is happening in the other tweets, and it kind of, then somebody's got to do it. And I think of the way the internet creates this almost anti-politics, like a politics with the comforting illusion, whether or not people really believe it, but at least on the internet, you can believe it, that you just need your people to like you better. And that's not politics. That's a it's like a it's a simulacrum of it. And I think it's hurting people. Right. I think it's having a very bad corrosive effect um, on all sides of the aisle. But it's very hard then to get away from it, because the more you operate inside that construct, the more that trying to do the work of inflating the humanity of people over on the uh, on the other side so that you can just even build a circle in which the two of you can talk so that you could try to do a politics where you might bring them along a bit like you're now violating so many uh so many codes that it's, it becomes a dangerous thing to do and a lot of people like figure they're better off not bothering well i think i think it's even like to me i, I what you're talking about i see it as you know the conditions of our real life are worked out in real life. You know, they're worked out in physical rooms. And the conditions in which we understand our life are worked out on the internet now. And 
And I think, like, I, I write in another essay, I mean, I think there's also been this practice of, we just try to adjudicate things through criticism and discourse, right? And you can't, you can't do that, right? You, we can't, like, I, as much as I would like to, I think this has been a thing that has been a focus of mine in writing about feminism. This this idea that we can adjudicate sexism through through talk, you know, through through identifying it in cultural criticism. And it's like, no, we adjudicate that through universal federally subsidized childcare. You know what I mean? Like it's like we're not gonna we're not gonna adjudicate inequality by talking about whether that joke about Sarah Sanders is eye makeup is sexist or not. Like the actual mechanisms through which this will be fixed are physical ones and they're structural ones. And the way we understand it, basically, you know, at some point it just pales in comparison to to what actually matters, you know, to what will actually change our lives. And I think, yeah, I, that's how I think about what you were just saying. Uh, of the pieces of your essays in the book, that actually seemed to me to be your most dangerous essay in a way. Yeah. Well, it's the only one where I'm like, I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's really interesting. So, I mean, you have this essay for, for people who haven't read it, which is about feminist commentary on celebrities, which is something that the you that Jezebel did a lot of, but that, that is very endemic on the internet. And you write, I've wondered if we're entering a period in which a line between valuing a woman in the face of her mistreatment and valuing her because of that mistreatment is blurring. If the legitimate need to defend women from unfair criticism has morphed into an illegitimate need to defend women from criticism categorically. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, and actually, I I was a little nervous about that one because, I mean, one thing that I I do, like some of my favorite critics like Ellen Willis were feminist critics of feminism often. And I feel like it's this freedom that's incumbent upon me to use, you know, is is that freedom, right? Anyway, so, but but actually people have not, so I was a little nervous about it too, but I also think that in general as a writer, I'm literally never saying anything new. I'm only talking about things that are kind of flowing in the back of people's minds. Like I think a lot of women have been really, a lot of feminists have been really impatient and sick of this tendency in feminism for a long time because I actually haven't gotten really any significant like pushback on this because I think it's something we've all been wanting to say out loud. So basically what it was is like, at Jezebel, we would write about some some woman, let's say like a female CEO who was doing something shady. And then we would always get this response that's like, you know, like, why are you tearing down, you know, like, why are you tearing down a woman, you know, for going after what she wants? You know, why? like, why would it, it was this idea that, you know, we could not, it was like feminist anathema to, to criticize a woman, which seemed like the exact misuse of the freedom that we were asserting and, you know, in a lot of ways had. Feminism has become, over the last 10 years, it's it's been inching into the mainstream of discourse in a way that I have benefited from. I wouldn't have a job if not for it. And, and part of that has been we have gotten pretty good at identifying sexist criticism, right? Like, we know that saying a woman is crazy or abrasive or shrill, like, we understand that that's a dog whistle now, you know? Along the way, though, feminism in, in this iteration has had this way of taking old patriarchal requirements and just, like— just changing the lights on them. You know, like the in another essay, I write about this idea that women are supposed to be incredibly beautiful and appealing and productive. You know, we used to have to, like mid-century magazines told us to do that for our husbands, but now there's a strain of feminism that tells us to do all of that for ourselves. 
And the like patriarchy would institute this idea of an ideal woman, like a woman on a pedestal. And when you put a woman on a pedestal, it's just always, you know, the, the next thing that happens is that she falls down. And feminism has not been able to let go of that. It continues to put women on pedestals. But now, because we understand, you know, because we have learned how to defend all of these women from the sexist criticism that they have taken, we now put difficult women on a pedestal. We now idolize women in proportion to the amount of sexist criticism they get often. Like you saw it with like Kim Kardashian, you know, who became this, like was framed as this sort of like weird empowerment icon for no reason, you know, just because she was rich and like had gotten rich despite having had a sex tape, you know. Um, It was just this world in which difficulty became this criteria for an ideal woman and feminism couldn't let go of this old idea that we should constantly be looking at women and analyzing them to see how good they are. Feminism just changed the metric a little bit. And for me, this really started to bother me with the Trump administration, right, where it just started this this practice of ferreting out and adjudicating inequality through cultural criticism. It became like it really, you really saw the limits of its use with the women in the Trump administration, right, where it was like that Sarah Sanders joke where we spent a week, the media spent a week talking about whether it was sexist to joke about her eyeshadow. And, you know, with Melania Trump's I don't really care, do you jacket that she wore when she visited the kids, you know, at the border, caged at the border in Texas. And the question was, like, is it sexist to criticize what a woman wears? And it was like this question, which was once necessary, has now kind of ballooned to this blanket defense that just because the criticism that a woman gets is extremely likely to have to do with sexism, you know, that all criticism of women is necessarily sexist, or that figuring out if what we say about a woman is sexist or not, as if that's always going to be the most important thing, if the, as if that could possibly be more important than kids at the border or, you know, the Trump administration at large, right? And it was something that I was nervous about, but actually— I think a lot of people have been thinking this for a long time. I really like that um, essay for a lot of reasons, but but particularly in terms of the frame, which you don't apply to it directly, but in terms of how online media cheapens our understanding of solidarity. Because one of the things there that is an underlying dynamic is that that seems to me to be another example of mistaking people's identities for the people themselves. So if what you've done is you've taken someone, be it a Sarah Huckabee Sanders or a Melinda Gates or whomever, like out of their identity as a person and into their identity as a woman or potentially as a feminist, well, then you then your orientation to them is driven by the identity, right? If you're a feminist and Sarah Huckabee Sanders in some way or through some definition is a feminist or at least is being like held up for a feminist reason in this particular instance, well, then like like identities attract. And as such, now you have to sort of be on Sarah Huckabee right. Sanders' side Which against Michelle Wolf. Chelsea Clinton has to as, defend Kellyanne Conway. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a that in a like that inability sometimes to see beyond the identity into the solidarity with people, including then, like, you're willing to be in solidarity with, to, to the point of your essay, difficult women under feminist identity, but not with other kinds of difficult people, right? You're, I think that's actually part of the thing that infuriates everybody about everybody else on the internet, which is this tendency to see people explaining away what seem to be, like, true violations of morality or good sense or whatever among their tribe, but then, like, they're they're willing to jump on 
anything among people on the other side. And that's a natural human thing where we're understanding and empathic and we 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 look for the multidimensionality of the people who are close to us. And then we're much easier. It's much easier for us to stereotype or scapegoat people who are further away. But but that yeah, that that kind of solidarity, where it's a solidarity of like identities, not a solidarity of people, where you're not like looking for the good in people, you're just looking for like the politically useful good in in the people in the identities nearest to you, seems long term like a very bad foundation for a politics. Well, and it also to me, this is again back to this thing of what's at the center of this is actually so important, right? Like I still think it's incredibly important that so much of a woman's life is framed by sexism. You know, it's still an incredibly salient thing about what it is to be a woman. And I think the thing that I was trying to do in that essay is I think that's why, I mean, identity, because there are there are so many systems that do reduce people to their identities, right? Like our abortion restrictions do reduce women to their basic identity as women. You know, like there are so many, there are so many things in this world in which you are, you know, against your will, reduced to the simplest form of your identity, that it seems so important to me to understand the moments in which you're not, right? It seems like, especially, and, and you see this with with feminism in particular, you have we've had this thing where women over the last 10 years, we have more cultural power than ever. And we have, you know, and at the same time, reproductive rights have been stripped away. Like it's not even, it's not predictable. It's always shifting. Um, like, you know, we even saw that from like, let's say Weinstein to Kavanaugh, like the terms on which these things were talked about were always shifting. And I think for me, it's like, it's really important to be really precise about how identity matters and how we're using it because it it's constantly changing. And so this idea that like we would need to protect like Sarah Sanders against sexism and like that was the most important like progressive thing we could imagine, you know, it's like defending her against a, a, a like it maybe it was a sexist joke about her eyeshadow. Like how much does that matter in context, right? Like I just I feel so strongly that like what's at the core of this, the question of whether or not you're you are being reduced. Um, it makes it so much more important to not, re- like, to not actively be the one doing the reducing. You know, there are two there are two forces in life that will always find the weak point of your system. Like one is the trolls, um, of which the Trump administration is basically administration of trolls, and they will always figure it out. You have the example of I think it was uh, I may blank on her name, but Gina Haskell who was the nominee for CIA director who had been in favor of blacks black site torture systems. And and I think it was Sarah Kabisander who said, if you're a feminist, you got to be in, in support of this nomination. But the other is um, capitalism, right? Uh, like the other side of this, to, to get it out of the Trump context, is sort of the advertising capital of woke, of woke capital, right? So, you know, you'll have like the Gillette, uh, like toxic masculinity ad or, you know, Nike and Colin Kaepernick and so on. And there's this there's this interesting chess match happening uh, where there's this identity where there's this effort to just advertise directly into a political identity and abstract out from the product and just like just purely pull in like, well, now this product is associated with X identity. And so now we're going to have a war over it and that will change who the product is acceptable to. And every time I see it, it's not that I don't appreciate it. Like, I, I like that. Colin Kaepernick is a Nike spokesperson. Like, I think he got screwed by the NFL. I think what he did was admirable. So, like, they hit me kind of right on the nose, given what my identities are like. But also the whole thing has, like, you re- you know you're being played. Like, you you can look at it and you know you're being played. 
Yeah. And I think like always, you know, with with that, I, I think that there's always there's always like a long tail and and like it's it always is going to come around to bite. Like I think, you know, I mean, my like the Dove Real Beauty campaign for women is is like the er example for this, right? This woke branding that, you know, like it's like Dove soap. It was just like showing naked women and it was feminist because they weren't I don't know. Like, I don't even remember why people liked it so much. I I hate that shit so much. And it's like, like, so you've had all of these companies in the women's space that are marketing themselves as, you know, like this empowerment consumption that like to buy Dove, you are vaguely participating in this important political goal that all women can be seen as beautiful. Right. And And it really worked for a while. Like people would watch those commercials and cry. And it was like this important thing. And I I just I never understood it. And I think and then later on, I was writing about it. And like even under the, you know, under the wings of these, you know, this ostensibly, you know, impeccable like body acceptance, whatever. It's still what I realized later on bothered me so much about the Dove campaign. It was just it was it was building it was putting forth this this purportedly extremely feminist idea that it's like really important in a political way to believe that all women are beautiful and that's an extremely marketable idea and people you know companies are making billions of dollars off that idea this like this idea of that it's a feminist goal that to think all women are beautiful and to me it's like that's so self-evidently like you know instead of a like i i have always dreamed of a body neutrality movement you know like what what i want is for beauty to matter less you know, I don't think it's it's like it's sort of like this quasi post Lena and feminist goal that it's the, you know, the most progressive thing we can imagine for all women to be, you know, prominent and successful and beautiful and rich. Um, and again, this is like a super marketable idea that tons of companies are making their money off of. And it puts forward this vision of power and, you know, progressive ideology that doesn't match up for me. Yeah, I, I think the I think the Dove campaign is a really good example here. There seems to me to be a way where on the identity-based internet, what has happened is that there's an understanding that you can get a cheap solidarity that is activated through identity in which you then become in solidarity with Dove or Gillette despite caring nothing at all about those products because they have developed an advertising campaign that is representing something about your identity and now they're getting flack for it or, or Nike and Colin Kaepernick. Um, like the, and, and so there's a kind of there's a there's a kind of solidarity that people are, are weaponizing there. But I think the part of it that that unnerves me the most is that we'll play along with it. And yet what we won't look for is solidarity with the people who don't have those resources, but also are not finding uh, a kind of identity uh, resonance. So there's a huge amount of effort put on the internet at all times to writing other people out of the conversation. Like, they are problematic, they are canceled, they are, they're gone, right? Like, they are gone. And it's one thing to me, if we've just lowered the bar for solidarity, we're willing to have a politics of coalition and compromise. But there's another in which we're just willing to have a solidarity of identity, but not a solidarity of humanity, <laughs> and such that corporations who can figure out identity can 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 like worm in under it. But people who are just you know like older people who don't kind of recognize the way social mores have changed, or people who say the wrong things. I know these are are, are the complaints everybody has on the internet, but I think the reason a lot of people have these complaints is they really feel it. They really feel how quickly people will revoke their solidarity with them if they get something wrong. It creates a sense of, of fear and anger, even among people who are otherwise quite um, social justice -y. 
And that to me is like solidarity is a really beautiful concept, but it requires it requires a willingness to be in solidarity in a difficult space. And I think we've sort of reversed it such that we only want to be in solidarity in the easy spaces. Yeah, I mean, I personally don't believe that cancel culture is real, like despite being like dead center in the demographic that's supposedly doing it. You know, I've had the internet mad at me plenty of times and it's it's fine. You know, like it's I actually think like this is another way in which I actually think that a lot of the people that complain about cancel culture are invested in believing that it's more powerful than it is because it then gives them a more solid identity as someone that's somehow been marginalized by the future. Like I um I think that like most of the experiences in my life is that we are still giving people plenty of slack um personally i think but um but i do think that i do think that the internet you know distorts like wildly distorts solidarity and do, it does make it very easy to withdraw it in a second for sure I, I my view on this has sort of changed over time so i'm i am one i want to say i agree that i don't think for almost anybody, the consequences are are real in the sense of being like objective and external and concrete. But what seems to me to have happened is we've developed into a world where the actual accountability people have for their words and actions, and here I'm talking about online and you know in certain spaces, is quite low. But the social sanction is very high, and there's a huge like somebody I think of, and I don't think of him very sympathetically in this way, but I always think it's interesting is like the unending rage Brett Stevens at the New York Times op-ed page has for people who criticize him on the internet. And I don't say this because I, I want to use this because I think it is like a difficult example. I think he's a really good example of somebody who's largely done nothing but profit from the fact that he's constantly pissing everybody off with op-eds that I think in most cases are not very good. <laughs> like it's not like he like figured out a real provocative, important thing to say. He's often just been sloppy. And yet when you see him write, like the personal rage and hurt he is carrying, despite being an important, extremely well-paid, like influential and so on player and all this is interesting. And it's like I see that in a lot of people. There's a, a real dissonance between the way people feel the social shaming, even though if you're just sort of willing to like walk through it, you're like people are fine on the other end. Like like you, I'm constantly being canceled on the Internet um, and people are constantly screaming at me and like getting like and, and have been for years. And like. I, I kind of think of it as a cost of doing business. But again, to part of our earlier conversation, I think that is a personality thing. Um, and a lot of – and if you don't if you don't have it, 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 it can drive you crazy. But so the, the Brett Stevens thing, I mean, like, you know, so many of the Times op-ed columnists, it's like it, that's the opposition thing we were talking about earlier, right? Like it behooves him. It behooves him to feel like castigated yes. and marginalized. And, and, you know, I mean, I think that it's it's not coincidental that, you know – like people with less power have had to sit and take the winds of castigation and disfavor that people with power are just starting to have to experience and it is withering some of them and making them so scared and and you know this is this is in many ways the waters in which all of us have been swimming in for a long time like i think that it's it's not coincidental that the people you see the most worried about you know cancel culture are the people that you know have had a had a lock, you know, had complete control of everything about their life for as long as they, you know, can imagine. Like, I think that is totally right. But I also like the one thing about that argument, which I hear sometimes that that always just weirds me out is, but is that working? Is it <laughs> like it? The idea that marginalized communities have faced this social opprobrium forever, 
And now it's being visited upon the powerful. And look, oh, I'm sorry they don't like it, but, you know, it's time for, for you know, for this to change. But in fact, it actually seems to me to work out the way you were saying a minute ago. It creates outrage merchants. I mean, Barry, Barry Weiss, to use another example on the New York Times op-ed page, there's no Vanity Fair profile of Barry Weiss if it's not just people constantly attacking Barry Weiss, like way out of proportion to anything that is influential or interesting in her commentary. Right, but I think that's on Barry Weiss and not the people that are, you know what I mean? I think that's on her more than more than the people that are upset that her columns are bad, you know? But I, I agree. Like, I I personally have, you know, blocked David Brooks and Barry Weiss on, on mute filters on my on my Twitter so that I like certainly I, w- I would never try to dunk on a dumb column that they write because it's so self-evidently stupid like you know it like this is this is I I agree in like a personal sense that I like engaging with this stuff is is ridiculous like trying to trying to get her fired for you know that racist tweet about the figure skater or whatever like it's it doesn't like it's 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 a useless endeavor but I, I think you know it's it's still her response it's still anyone's responsibility oh, yeah. to you know, again, so like we were saying earlier, don't take the bait, you know, <laughs> like. Yeah, the responsibility on right on us journalists to be good is our responsibility. The The point I, I was making there is just that I think sometimes a lot of things that feel socially very weird get justified as their good politics, right? Like this is going to change how these people act. And then I look around, it's like Donald Trump is president and, you know, it, it doesn't. It doesn't seem to work. It's a little bit why I've become more interested in this idea of of the online space operating as a as a sort of anti-politics where we have a lot of ideas and 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 they're they work within our own communities. But then when you ladder them up, it turns out they don't work as a politics and they just generate energy towards the people who are willing to 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 draft off them. And so there's this thing that on the one hand it's like yes, they're they're profiting off of it and maybe it's a responsibility not to. But on the other hand, we've developed a kind of online culture that is that ultimately just generates energy for these folks and then then it's like, well, they're provocative. Time to time to trigger the profile. Right. Right, right, right. That I think gets to this other one of destroying the sense of scale. Right. So I I forget what year it was, right? I think I start that section talking about that. It's like a really right when Facebook instigated the news feed, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, that was in the press release. Like he said, sometimes, you know, a squirrel dying in your front yard will be more important to you than people starving in Africa. And basically, I mean, I think that this this thing that the Internet does, right, it takes this natural thing like it and like the fact that that is sometimes true, you know, like if like sometimes I that we are interested in dumb shit right in front of us and, you know, can't, like, I think that that's true and it's normal and it's it's healthy in a lot of ways. It's another one of these things about just being alive that the internet, you know, mon- by monetizing and scaling to this degree, just, it destroys, it destroys the purpose of this original impulse and this original kind of instinct in, in humans. Like the idea that some things close to us will be more important than other, you know, it's the idea that what we think of as important will not always be objectively true. Um, and I think that this idea that the internet destroys our sense of scale, I I started thinking about it. Like, remember that year, right? It was that year that everyone was doing worst year ever memes. You know, like me at the beginning of 2016, oh, me yeah, at the end right. of 2016, right? And it was like the Statue of Liberty and then the Statue of Liberty at the end of Planet of the Apes, you know? Um, <laughs> and like, yeah, or like, you know, like a hummingbird and then like a raven with a bloody knife in its mouth. And, you know, the, the I think the fact of being on the internet, it feels like the, the feeling of being on it, on it is that of being able to know everything about anything and being and feeling like you're able to do less and less about anything at all. And again, this we're, we're, we've been talking around this same 
thing about the internet being this like para-universe, right? This, this simulacrum that generates and curtails and contains and like redirects our energy in, you know, what leaving the actual mechanisms of power like alone to the people that already control them, right? And the internet, I mean, it just like we're it just just as our selfhood is not meant to bear all of these different weights at all the, you know, constantly and, you know, simultaneously and never-endingly, it seems like our brains and our our hearts and our souls are not meant to be on, on social networks at this scale. We're not meant to be able to understand everything, to be able to take in an unlimited supply of horrible information every day. Our brains aren't built to allow us to identify what we can do about, you know, what we can do something about and what we'll never be able to do anything about. And I think part of the sort of over simultaneous overexcitement and exhaustion that people radiate when they are creatures of the internet, it's this feeling of not understanding how to calibrate our hearts to the amount of information that we take in and not not understanding if, you know, it's better to to know less, you know, or if there's an obligation to know everything and, you know, like, can we care about all of it at the same time? And what would caring about all of it at the same time even look like? You know, what would that translate to in terms of action or like, you know, and I think that, yeah, that's just the, don't you think that that's such a defining feeling of being on the internet, this sense of like constant bombardment and, you know, impotence? Yeah. And 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 the sense that you're somehow doing something virtuous by exposing yourself to it all the time. Right. And and then the countervailing right? sense that you want to know, right? And and I and I don't know I don't know what the way out of it is. And I and yeah, it's it's really confounding. We need to take a quick break here, but we'll be back in a moment. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. 
So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Do you remember the New York Times article? Must have been two years ago now. About the guy? About that guy. Uh huh. About the guy. We both know what we're talking about. I never read it because I was scared to read it. I was afraid that it would make me cry. So he was a former Nike executive of some sort. I don't think super high up, but but whatever. Um, anyway, after Donald Trump, he decides. As I'm saying this for for people. Yeah, who yeah. Read it. Well, I listen. I haven't read it, so. <laughs> oh right, yes. So he he decides to erect a bubble around him. He doesn't want to know anything. So he like moves to the woods. I don't remember. It's in Ohio or somewhere like that, um, somewhere in the Midwest. And he moves to the woods, and he just becomes obsessive about not knowing anything in the news. So when he goes to the coffee shop in the morning, he puts on a white noise machine when his his family is not allowed to talk to him about the news. I mean, he goes to literally psychotic levels of, of effort at this to, to build this bubble where he is just completely cut off from all information about what is happening in, in national events. And when you read it, you're like, I mean, this guy seems kind of mentally ill, but when you read it, it's infuriating. And, and then you and people were furious. I mean, it was this huge online hate of this guy. Then at the end, there's this other part of the piece. And it mentions that the thing he's doing with all of his time while he's living his hermitage quietest life is he has purchased a wetland, uh, an, an area nearby that used to be used for mining. And he is spending all of his money and all of his time restoring it as a public trust. It's like all of his energy is going in to this thing that he's going to leave to the future, which is like a public trust of this wetland that had been taken over by industry, but he is restoring to its beauty. And like, there it is. Like, that's going to be his gift. And I kept thinking after reading that piece and reading like everybody shitting on this guy, like, are we doing better? Are we like all of us like reading about Donald Trump, like rather than him, like working on this local public wildlife reserve or whatever it's going to be, there seemed to me to be something so off in the intuitive sense that he was doing something privileged and selfish and awful by just cutting himself off from national news that he couldn't control and fully inhabiting this local project he could control. And I'm not saying people should go all the way to his level. Like, I think it's important to be a citizen of the country you live in and and know what's going on. But tilting in that direction doesn't seem crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I didn't read it because I was afraid that I would just, like, start crying and never stop. But I, um, but I, I, I understood what th- this about it. And yeah, it was very obvious to me that in terms of like net utilitarian, just like purely like, you know, Peter Singer plus or minus whatever, like, you know, he he was probably doing a lot more lasting good in the world than me. Right. And, and then all than a lot of us probably. And I think but it was also so clear, like people I think it's I think it's fair to be anguished. Like I understood why people were anguished. There's so many people, like again, back to this thing, there are so many people who are reduced, you know, this question of escaping politics. There's so many people that can't, right? And, you know, like there's so many people whose lives are bounded and constrained. And and I and I think I understood the the ferocity and the disproportion of the anger leveled at the sky. Because I think there is a deep like jealousy and anger and, you know, rightful like rightful anger that it's so possible for some people to do that and so so impossible for others to not but i do again it's like back to that question we're talking about with with feminists like 
it's I think it's one of the most important projects of our time to understand what freedoms are available to us and what rooms of open space we can build within our own consciousnesses and, you know, ways of living in the world. And I do think that it is a completely essential project for us to identify where we could get free to do something and, you know, and get free to do something in whatever, you know, whatever that means. And I, when I stopped editing, when I stopped working at Jezebel, I had been an editor. And so I was constantly on the news. Like I was constantly on Twitter, just looking for things, like looking for, you know, things that people could blog about, you know, things that I could blog about, things that I could assign. And it did give me kind of a way into the future when I left and was just, my my news consumption changed completely after I no longer had to be assigning news items to people. And I, I've never, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like there's, there's a lot, like I, you know, I've, I've Trump blocked on Twitter. Um, you know, so I don't see when people retweet him or whatever. I, I've never read anything about his tweets on the internet. Like I, there are just certain things that I, I fully disengage from. And I think that that's like learning what amount of news is personally productive for each of us is and kind of not worrying too much about that and making sure to use that freedom that we gain psychically to do something. I think we're, we're going to have to do that forever. You know, I, like it's otherwise we're not going to survive. I think I think that's right. I, I'll just I want to interrogate just one little piece of that because it's the other thing I hear all, a, a lot in this conversation. And this is in my head because it's in my book. I've like written a little section on this. But this idea that I do not really want to defend this guy, but I'm going to do so for the sake of the argument that he could opt out of politics, but but other people can't. There's this idea that it, it is this line on the Internet that, well, like it's a choice for some people, not for everyone. And a lot of my entire life is built around the idea that whether or not you're interested in politics, it's interested in you. So it's important that we try to get it right. But a lot of people whose lives are very bounded by politics don't spend much time at all looking at it. That's actually one of the problems. And in an even deeper way, like something that I have seen a lot in like the political science literature is that the more politics feels like just everyone's screeching at each other, the more people are turned off from it. So there's like this collective action problem where like as everybody screams louder and louder, a lot of people we most need to opt in, opt out because they just don't like people don't like that level of conflict. It's a personality type that is willing to deal with it. And so I just I, I don't disagree on some level. Like I, I want sort of everybody to pay attention and know. But there is a sometimes self-justifying thing people say where like I have to because other people have to. But that's actually not how it works for other people. And then the the thing we're all creating is in many ways like wiping more people out of politics because they don't want to be part of this thing that is just like everybody screaming at each other about like how, how they're writing those that is terrible, even when it seems like given their material circumstance or the way their lives are, are wrapped up in, say, Trump administration policy, you you would expect them to, to, to be there. there. There's like people's relationship, like normal people's relationship, not political junkies to come to politics is way less straightforward than I think a lot of our rhetoric about them suggests. Yeah. I mean, and I know this like, you know, in a deeply personal sense, too, like there are like people in my family whose lives would be much, you know, like are are much more on the line than, you know, than and and it's not like they are, you know, are glued to the news more than me, you know? I guess, I mean, I didn't, you know, you won't catch me tweeting shit about that article. You know, like, I, I'm i not saying that <laughs> sure, I think, yeah. I'm not saying it's useful. I'm not saying it's useful. I'm just saying I understand the impulse, you know? Yeah, totally. Like, in general, I think a lot of things about the about Twitter specifically would be fixed if people just tried a little bit harder to, like, 
like like I think this with AirPods, you know, like a lot of things like people people need to just try to be cool. Like people got to like, <laughs> you know, like I, I often I'm like, you know, people um, like, you know, how pe- like sometimes people will start tweeting about tweets they don't like, you know, like a type of tweet they don't like. But yeah. in doing that, they are magnifying the type of tweet they don't like. And and it's like yeah. there are certain types of tweets that I'm just like never like I think that we would all be better off if we like collectively, you know, just like tried not to be annoying and waste other people's time on the internet just as like a, a matter of social <laughs> skills and etiquette. You know, like I, I think that's one of those things that kind of um like I try to be this the exact same online as I am off. And offline I think we bas- we basically try to be like a decent hang, you know? Like we try to be <laughs> like we try to make it work. We try to act in ways that we would want other people to mostly I think. We we try to act towards other people interpersonally in a way that we want them to act towards us. Most of us do actively try that, I think. And on the internet, people are constantly doing things they know are pointless pointless and annoying just because the incentives are so strong. And I really wish that, like, it's sort of like a soft social wish I have, is that more people would just try to be chill on the internet. Like, you know, I mean, I haven't I haven't tweeted about Trump in probably like a year and a half. Like, it's just like, it's just like, oh, there's a lot of things that are self-evidently like incredibly useless. And um, and I think that like part of that is this like sense that the Internet is a like a different overheated, like extra, you know, special in some way sphere. When in reality, I think all of this like systemic, like algorithmic incentives and structures of these companies aside, I think a lot of it, you know, in terms of if we want to talk about the, you know, the personal responsibility valence, I think the the greatest thing we could all do for each other is just try to be, like, try to be a better hang on the internet, you know? Like, why, like, we all try to have fun in real life. Like, we all try to have fun and have a good time and, like, you know, be nice to be around in real life. And a lot of us just like openly are insufferable on the internet. And I think I, that is like, I think that's so whack, you know? <laughs> I love it. Tell them to you know, 2024, just, just, just try yeah, to just be try cool. Yeah, just try to be cool. It's just not like, that hard. Try to be cool. Just try to be cool. <laughs> <laughs> There's one other thing that, that you wrote that um, resonated with me that I just wanted to, to cover before I lose you here, which is one of the things you do in the book really beautifully is um, perform a discomfort. Uh, and I think you feel it, right? But But a lot of the book is you're inside systems and you're not comfortable with them. And you you read something about being a writer that I I really resonated to, which is you say you're talking here about this sense that maybe what we're doing is making everything worse. And you say the suspicion is hard for me to articulate in part because I extinguish it by writing. When I feel confused about something, I write about it until I turn into the person who shows up on paper, a person who is plausibly trustworthy, intuitive and clear. And I've been thinking a lot recently about how much more my writing uh, displays a sense of certainty than I often feel, certainly, or then comes out, say, in this podcast, and how even when I try to infuse my writing with less certainty, I seem to fail. Like it, 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 like it, like drives me into an argumentative structure, and then soon enough, if I've done it well, exactly, well, then I feel more convinced. I've become, as you put it, and I'd never seen that written that way before, but it really seems oh, true so to me that the writing has an effect back on the person. And and bad, maybe. <laughs> and there's also no way around it, right? I mean, I, I think it's, like, again, I'm like, there are all these sort of structural parallels about everything we've been talking about, right? Like, it's in, in a lot of ways, 
like we're we're talking about things that have are always going to have two countervailing you know directions right like i i am trying to diminish myself i'm trying to diminish myself and understand it as a thing that only exists in in context and a thing that's not that fucking interesting and i at the same time you know being alive makes you feel like yourself is at the center of the world right like we can't escape that and it's the same with writing right like i think I mean, I did. It was one of the only goals I had for this book that I would not try to write myself out of the deep sense of uncertainty that I felt, that I would try to find a mode of clarity that was coherent with that uncertainty. That was like one of my only goals because it's because it's hard to do. And I, for some reason, find it harder to do in shorter writing because you can find a kind of a dot to put on something at the end of, you know, like a thousand words. For me, I, I can, right? But you're only getting to like there's there's more you could wonder right like it it's not the end of that question and for some reason that was easier for me to work out in these very very long essays where you know you can arrive at points there there were there were moments of clarity i thought but it didn't didn't necessarily add up to much about what we're going to or what we should do or really anything about that it's even just it's it's like that cadence of of writing you know it's like at the at the end you know the the last two sentences or the epilogue right just stuff stuff sort of it's like we try to make a turn back towards here's the way out right and i think that's again like we need to want that we like we have to want that or else we will ha- we would have no purpose in writing or being alive right but because so much is leading me towards that place naturally it seemed like an interesting the most interesting thing i could try is to see what it would look like to fight that at all. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, like, that's the project of the book at all. Like, that's the project of the book at, at large. I think it's a beautiful project and and just something that I, I think a lot about the Joan Didion comment that writers, including myself, often love, that the process of writing is the process of finding out what I think. And that that always seems so great. And then over time, I've been like, but wait, what if it's the process of convincing myself of what to think and losing all that, like the, some, at least some of that complexity behind it, right? I'm, I'm, I'm my own easiest mark in yeah. this way. And, and it's one thing about the book, and it's something I see in some in, in commentary that is uh, emerging from some of the people I think most suffused to the internet. So sort of a, a you or Charlie Rozelle or, or, or some of the other people who have been my guides to this for a long time, which is almost in the form of the writing an, an effort to push against the collapsing down of the thing itself. That if you've been on the internet for a long time and have felt too often, the way you collapse down into a point yeah. of certainty yeah. that you didn't yeah, really yeah, feel, yeah. but on the internet now you do. The, I'm seeing a lot of people begin to react in the, in the literal like uh, formalism of their work to try to recenter their own sense of uncertainty and humanity and questioning. You see it in people, I think, moving to podcasts and newsletters and and these places where there's more room to be uncertain. Yeah. yeah and I think, you know, it's it's like our jobs as writers in a lot of ways is to be clear and convincing, right? There's no way around that. And I think this is all part of the question of like there are incentives and, te- and instincts in front of us, and to some degree they're good and taken to an absolute, they're corrosive. And the question is just figuring out, you know, how you can, how do we, how do we live between those poles, and how do we, you know, how do we keep recalibrating ourselves towards the thing that will make us more human and not less? And I think, and in general, this is like what we're all trying to figure out about the internet right now, right? Like this is what I find. This is what I find so touching about memes is because they're the little like, they're the little 
the little flares going off of people still trying to be normal, you know? Um, there, there are, like, all these ways in which people are still trying to be human in systems that are trying to strip away the human things about us. And, um, and you know, there are ways that we are trying to, you know, resist our attraction to, you know, like, our attraction to, like, over-certainty or something, right? Like, we, we're trying to resist this thing that we need, we, like th- that in, in a lot of ways we need and we'll never be able to separate ourselves from. And I, th- and that is like, it's a really degraded pleasure and, you know, it's not a compensatory one, but I do think that, you know, despite the internet being such an obvious nightmare, it is still really interesting and pleasurable and kind of a sick way to watch us all try to fight it in some way, you know? I think that's a good place to to, to come to a close. So let me ask you the, the question we always used to end, which is, what are three books that have influenced you that you'd recommend to the audience? Oh, that have influenced me. Well, let me just we've talked about we've talked about that Jenny O'Dell book, so I guess I won't say that one. Um I just books that I've been talking about a lot lately. Um I've been talking about Ocean Vong's novel on Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, which man, I cry like once a year. I'm like not very emotional or like in that way. And I I mean, I just it's it's such a good book. It's such it's it's a it's a novel. It's kind of like a memoir. It's unbelievable. Um, I've also been thinking a lot about Random Family, that Adrienne Nicola Blanc book. She spent ten years reporting the story of a family in the Bronx, and it's like it's the greatest book about the criminal justice system I've ever read. It's it's like the most. I think one of the reasons I wanted to write a book was I like one of the essays is about my I grew up in this you know, Texas megachurch, not religious, but I have retained this lifelong attraction to devotion and, you know, and this idea of attention is prayer. And, you know, and this book, you know, she spent 10 years writing it and it's, it's perfect. It's, it's the most like humane and devoted and beautiful and like indelible. I love it so much. And I've also been talking a lot about, um, I've also been talking a lot about Matthew Desmond's Evicted, right? It's so, like, one thing that I think has frustrated some people reading my book is that I don't offer prescriptions. And I think that's made people think that I don't have any and that I don't think there are any. And I think it's like that's not at all true. I just think that all of, like, there there are very obvious policy solutions to basically every problem I talk about in the book. But, you know, I don't want to make the essays bad <laughs> by, like, adding really obvious things to them. Um, and and I like I've been talking a lot about when it's appropriate to tell people what should happen and you know what should be next. And I I think of Evicted as one of the books that it's like you read it and it's so beautiful and it's so well reported. And I do need that ten pages at the end saying here's the way forward. And I and I think that I've been thinking about it a lot um, because I I do think that sometimes we do need the writer to say. Here is what I am certain we need. <laughs> and that is the kind of book where it's perfect. Oh, I'm so jealous that you're able to write a book without a conclusions chapter. No. If I, <laughs> well, it was if like I a, could lot mine off, I totally would. Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> I don't like, th- I think that uh, when I went into my first, I mean, this book, this is like why I'm very surprised it's like people are reading it because I mean, I went into my first publicity meeting at Random House and they were like, okay, question number one what is the number one takeaway for readers? And I was like, oh, oh, no, you know, (laughs) like I was like, "Mm, maybe it's that knowledge is useless. I don't know. You know, (laughs) like I just sort of like I melted and just like slid down the chair. Um, 
Like, sometimes I wonder if my non-conclusiveness is just entirely a cop-out on me not being able to provide a well-written one. But, you know, my, I thought I might as well try. Gia Tolentino, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Gio Tolentino for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. Thank you to Roger Karma for researching, Jeffrey Geld for producing and editing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen.